0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to open our eyes to your goodness, to your sovereignty, to your might, to your compassion, that we might flee to you in the midst of temptation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a lot to cover in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and so I would draw your attention to that passage in your bulletin. And Paul has something to say to us about temptation, how temptation often manifests itself in in our own lives. And then finally he talks about God in the midst of temptation. Where is he? But the first thing that we need to understand is that the word here for temptation does not strictly mean being solicited into sin. And so at first glance, you may think that as as if the waiter is coming up to you after the meal and saying, can I tempt you to dessert? And of course you think, well, I don't really need that, but since you asked, and you succumb to the temptation. Now it does mean that, but it also means trial, testing, tribulation, or any troubles that we might be going through in life. And when you think of it that way, it changes the meaning of the passage, doesn't it? It's no longer being tempted <clears throat> excuse me, to sin necessarily as it means any sort of tribulation or trial where you feel like life is pressing in on you and actually might crush you. When you're at a place spiritually where you feel like it's completely unbearable, And there seems to be no way out. That's what Paul is talking about here. And so with that in mind, let's look at chapter 10. Paul lists three ways in which temptation is often manifested, uh, the way that how temptation manifests itself in the life of the believer. The first one is idolatry in chapter 7, in verse 7 where he says, do not be idolaters. Because when life begins to press in on you, we all have a propensity to find something that is going to be the fix. We're gonna look for something that is going to give us meaning and joy. And more often than not, it is something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when life tends to be incredibly stressful, when we're tempted, we tend to reach for idols. And then in the next instance, he says, do not indulge in sexual immorality. Well, this is a commonplace thing with those of us who are being tempted or under trial because sexually immoral behavior is an easy and quick fix to give you a sense of fulfillment. It satisfies you in the now. And even though that immorality might wreck your life and everyone else's around you, you're willing to engage in it just to feel alive. Just to feel anything again. And so as Paul says earlier to the Corinthians who had a propensity to sin sexually, flee from sexual immorality. But then notice the third way in which temptation often manifests itself in the life of the believer. Verse 10, grumbling. Now, idolatry and sexual immorality, I get. But would you classify grumbling at the same level? Would you think that grumbling is on par with those other two things? Well, St. Paul would say yes because grumbling is particularly insidious, because it's a sin that we're probably not aware that we're committing it in the moment. And of course, all of this is being cast back through the lens of the Israelite exodus from Egypt. And the grumbling that took place there in the wilderness is actually what kindled God's wrath against them. So much so that after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness of the generation that came out of Egypt, how many actually could remember Egypt? Out of the thousands, two. God made them wander for 40 years in order that those who remembered Egypt would have perished in the wilderness. So grumbling to God is a big deal. But as I said, when you're in the midst of it, you don't notice it. You know, the Israelites, walking along, wandering in the wilderness, there's the pillar of cloud, and one says to their neighbor, hey, do you remember Egypt? Do you remember the cucumbers? remember the pots of meat? You know, it's amazing to me that they never said, hey, remember how fun it was to make bricks without straw? Wasn't it lovely, the yoke of Pharaoh's slavery all around our necks? That was really great, wasn't it? Now, we always have a propensity to accentuate the positive. I mean, this happens every single time we have a picture made. You ever dig up an old picture And you look at that picture and you'd say, I'd kill to look like that again. But you know, when you had that picture taken, do you know what you thought when you first saw it? You look terrible. And so actually, as you move on in life, when you're grumbling, you tend to actually not be able to see a thing for it is. And this is how Anthony Thistleton puts it. Grumbling is a sin of ingratitude and a disloyal sowing of seeds of discontent among others. That what begins as a seemingly innocuous conversation amongst a fellow parishioner quickly becomes cancerous throughout the entire body. And it's not just grumbling at that point of nostalgia, it's actually undermining the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying that it is a serious thing To be in a fellowship that is marked by grumblings. And so so these are three ways in which uh, tribulation, temptation, trial manifest themselves in the life of the believer. But then he goes further to talk about the nature of temptation itself. Because he says, look, in verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Meaning if you think that you're spiritually superior in a way that you're not going to succumb to temptation, remember the Israelites. They were God's chosen people. And yet they too stumbled and fell when the pressures of life pressed in upon them. But Paul wants us to know that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He wants us to understand that temptation is going to come to each and every single one of us because the temptations that we experience in our own lives are actually common to every man and woman who walk the face of the earth. We live in a fallen world. But do you ever think about that? That the world in which we live is not the world as God made it. It is the world as sin spoiled it. We don't live in the world that God made and pronounced over it. It is good. And so if we think that as Christians that we ought to have a freedom from and the absence of pain and tears, that belongs in heaven. That belongs to heaven. And we won't realize it here on this earth until Jesus Christ comes back again and makes all things right. And so having this understanding that temptation, trial, suffering is common to all people, it helps us to protect it helps and protects us from two misunderstandings. The first is the question that we often ask, where was God when? Where was God when this great tragedy came upon me? Where was God when the tsunami overwhelmed Southeast Asia? And the answer is that God is on his throne. That he is no different than he was before. But the fact of the matter is, is that we live in a fallen world where evil is rampant and manifests itself even in the creation, which groans for with eager longing as a woman in childbirth to be delivered. This understanding of the fallenness of God's world also reminds us that Christians are not free from Tribulations because we are a part of this fallen world. And it's hard for us to fathom these things at times. You know, I don't think that God expects us to understand why these things happen. Why we suffer. Why we are in a trial. He would not be God if He could be fathomed in all of His dealings with us. But what He does expect is for us to trust Him. We ought to be like Saint Augustine who said, I can see the bottom, but I cannot plumb the depths. And so the Christian life is one of learning to know God and growing in the knowledge of God. Because you will never trust a God you do not know. You don't trust a person that you do not know, so why should you trust a God that you do not know? And so, learning more of God and getting to know Him is the beginning of trusting Him, whatever the circumstances might produce. And so, it's understanding who God is and what He's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ that is of paramount importance to the believer. Because you know, the devil's at work in order to undermine those principles. Have you ever noticed that the strategy of the devil is to isolate believers in the midst of tribulation? It's not without significance that the devil came to tempt Jesus when he was alone in the wilderness. Isolation so often accompanies our most severe trials. And the devil persuades us to add to our temptation or our tribulation by getting believers to separate themselves from God's worshiping people. We tend to avoid others, especially other Christians. We think, I don't feel comfortable going to church, being in the situation or the shape I'm in, because they wouldn't want me to be around anybody. They don't want somebody like me around And so as believers, we tend to isolate ourselves when we go through temptation, when we go through trial. We disappear, and that's a work of the devil. A friend of mine said that the greatest bereavement he ever experienced was the death of his brother. He had just become a believer, my friend, and his brother died at the age of 29, only a few short months after being married. And my friend Eric was completely undone by it, even though he was a believer, and what he found was the propensity to try to go it alone, to avoid the company of other people. But do you know what else he noticed? He noticed that other people avoided him as well. And years later, after God had done a healing work in his life, he asked some of his fellow believers who he thought avoided him the question, why did you do that? And they very candidly said, we avoided you because we didn't know what to say to you. We didn't know what word to speak into your life. And brothers and sisters, isn't that true of us? That when we see a brother or sister struggling in life, maybe the hardest time of their life, rather than entering into the situation, And speaking a word of hope, of coming alongside them and sharing the burden of their yoke, we simply pull back and leave them to themselves. Because we isolate ourselves by saying things like, I'm the only person who has ever struggled with this temptation, or I'm the only person who has ever experienced this trial. But a great factor in true Christian fellowship is honesty, is transparency, is vulnerability. That is believers that we are actually willing to be honest with one another about our spiritual experiences and stop pretending. Because all of us feel the great weight of the one place where I can't be honest is church. Because I want people to think of me as a spiritual giant. That my walk with the Lord is perfect. I have my picadillos, but generally things are fine. But we harbor a great fear that we would actually be known by one another. And yet what St. Paul is saying here is that honesty with one another and sharing temptation and trial and tribulation is the mark of God's worshiping community. And we also find, when we're honest with one another, that we hear one another say things like, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I'm feeling what you're feeling. But more than just knowing that we have other believers who are there for us, that can minister to us. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So temptation and trial is not only common to us, but it's also common to the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Did you hear it? He was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. And so when you become isolated and think that no one has ever gone through what you're feeling, you are able to say, not only are my brothers and sisters going through this, but I have this word from God standing against any such notion. For the Lord Jesus Christ has felt what I am feeling, but even more, Jesus experienced the temptations but did not sin. Now, if you're like me, you're probably saying in your mind right now, well, that's easy for him because he's Jesus. If I were like Jesus, I'd probably be able to resist them too. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. One of the great Days in my grammar school was field day. I loved it. You got out of class. It was fantastic. And my favorite event was the tug of war. Do you remember the tug of war? Everybody on one side, other people on the other. You had a little band in the middle, and whoever pulled it over or pulled the people over was who won. Well, in tug of war, who is it that feels the greatest strain? Who is it that feels the greatest pull? Who is it that feels the greatest stress? Who has has to exert the greater strength? Those who yield and fall or those who hold on and do not give way? Do you see? Jesus' struggle with temptation and trial is far greater than anything that you and I could ever experience because we let go. We yield and give way where He holds fast and never falls. This is why the early church father, Origen, said of Jesus, He was made like us in order to be tempted. We are tempted in order to be made more like Him. And so Jesus knows everything that you're going through, and as hard as the pain and the temptation is for you, it is infinitely more for Jesus because he did not give way. Now the remaining verses that we have where we read that we will not be tempted beyond our ability and will be provided a way of escape That makes us turn in on ourselves and think, okay, well, what does that mean? How am I going to withstand the temptation? How am I going to find a way out? But actually, these verses are not about us. They're about God. Look at the second half of verse 13. What does it say? God is faithful. God, do you know what faith that means, that God is faithful? It means that his character is unchangeable. He is incapable of doing anything out of his character. I got a speeding ticket in Beaufort uh, one time, and uh, while I was awaiting trial, there were about 14 people, actually it was exactly 14 people that went before me, and as I came in, I already had my defense ready, and that was that I had a spectacular driving record, which was without fault, and so this one ticket was out of character to the real person that I am. I kid you not, 13 out of the 14 people ahead of me use the same defense (laughs) but you know God never says that he never does anything that is out of his character and so coming to know this God in an intimate and personal way is of paramount importance and how we come to know this God is through the Lord Jesus Christ through him is the word made flesh, but also through the living word, the scriptures, where we find the true God in our present situation. Because what is true of God in the scriptures is true of God now with whatever temptation or trial that you're dealing with. Do you know that? And the only way to know that is actually to ex- experience him in his word. Because if you're trying to do that apart from his word, what do you cling to? How do you know who he is? How do you know his character? This is why I've clung mightily to 2 Kings chapter 6 recently. Do you know 2 Kings chapter 6? The armies of Ben-Hadad? Well, my point is you should. And I'm going to tell you, but you should go back and read it tonight. Ben-Hadad, the great king of of Syria who had a great army. But every time his army would make a move, there was the army of Israel waiting for him. And Ben-Hadad became so frustrated that he said to his court, Who amongst us? Was that, the, was that? Who amongst us? Who amongst us is for the king of Israel and who is for me? Thinking, surely there's a spy amongst us who is sharing all of our information because what all of our plans and our plotting, the king of Israel knows. And he shows up there and one of his servants says, My lord and my king, there is no traitor amongst you. But it is the prophet Elisha who was telling the king of Israel the movements of your army. And Ben-Hadad asks, where is Elisha? And do you know where Elisha is? You've all been there. He's in Dothan. And so Ben-Hadad gathers every man, every spear, every chariot, every horse and sends them to Dothan. And you can only imagine the people watching this great army ride out and wonder, what enemy are you going to conquer with such a force? And the answer is the one man, Elisha. And they make their way to Dothan and they surround the whole city. And Elisha's young servant gets up in the morning and he looks out the window and he sees the armies of Ben Hadad. And he wakes Elisha and he says, We're surrounded and there's no way out. What shall we do? And Elisha says to the young man, those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. And painting a word picture in our mind, you can see the expression on the young man's face to Elisha. In Elisha's prayer, he says audibly, Lord, open the young man's eyes. And he looks out the window again. And the entire hillside is covered with chariots of fire. And there is the army of Jehovah. And Elisha and his servant pass through unscathed. Now no offense to those of you who have a Sewanee connection and believe in a guardian angel. Do you know what you would see if God opened your eyes in the midst of your temptation and trial? The armies of Jehovah and the commander of the army, Jesus Christ himself, standing in the midst, going before you and coming behind you, doing battle on your behalf. Because it's very rare that our eyes are opened in the the midst of the struggle. We can look back in hindsight and say, ah, there was God. But if your eyes were to be opened in the midst of it, that is what you would see. The Lord of hosts. This is why it's so important that you come to know God day by day by digging into the scriptures for the revelation of what He is like. His character is eternally the same, His word is eternally true, and He never goes back on His promises or acts out of character. And so you can say to yourself in the midst of temptation, God is faithful. But Paul tells us, too, that not only is he faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I know we're nearing the end of time, so I'll hurry through these last points. What Paul is saying is that God is not only faithful, God is sovereign. He will not let you be tempted. That he is in control of everything. John Bunyan illustrates this so well as Christian is making his way up the hill of difficulty. And there at the top of the hill, he's made it all that way and he sees these lions lying in his pathway. And so many who have gone before him have turned back when they see the lions. But Christian begins to look closer and he sees that the lions are chained. But he begins to wonder how strong are these chains? How long are these chains? Can I possibly pass by them to safety? But putting his trust in God, he moves forward. And as he moves forward, he sees that there are hands holding the chains, restraining the lions. And of course, these are the hands of the sovereign Lord. And so as you approach temptation and trial in your life, a sovereign God stands over you and restrains. This is the God who rules over your life even in times of temptation and trial and often these trials and temptations are there to push you into Him so that you have no other means of escape by the Lord Jesus Christ because that's what we see that He's not only faithful and sovereign but he's also a compassionate God when he says that you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. God knows you so intimately that he knows what you can bear and not bear. He shields us against that which he knows we cannot bear. Have you ever wondered why there are some areas in your life that you're simply not tempted in? I would bet that you're like me and you think that it's because you were strong in that area. But have you ever considered that it might be because you're weak in that area and a caring and compassionate father has shielded you? And so he provides a way out for us, a fire escape, a way out through the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why he closes this section, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Not just flee from the temptation and trial, but flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you see it in this passage. I hope you see it in your life. The temptation and trials, they come, but we're not meant to bear them alone. We're meant to bear them amongst one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're meant to cast them on the Lord Jesus Christ who has been tempted in every way that we are and felt it more intensely than we ever have and ever will and yet did not sin. And if this living God, Jesus Christ, He is faithful, He is sovereign, and He is compassionate. Flee to Him in temptation and trial for He is our great ark of refuge, Jesus Christ. Amen.